Welcome to the Cornell Policy Review Podcast. My name is Austin Reed, and I am the Senior Managing Editor at The Review. This podcast series will explore a variety of policy issues through interviews and conversations with figures around the world. Today, we are excited to bring you a conversation between Shivanshu Sharma, an MPA fellow at the Cornell University Jeb E. Brooks School of Public Policy, and Professor Raza Rumi, director of Ithaca College's Park Center for Independent Media, and a noted Pakistani policy analyst, journalist, and author. They discuss the causes and consequences of the ongoing Afghanistan crisis and the role of the global community amidst this time. review podcast and thank you thank for taking the time out to talk to me about the Afghanistan crisis and role of the global community. Thank you Shivanshu for inviting me uh, as always a pleasure to talk to you. So let's start by talking about you a little bit. Uh, for our listeners can you please share your background and your professional journey? Well as you know Shivanshu I now teach at the Cornell Institute for Public Affairs. I'm also working at Ithaca College and I uh, direct the Park Center for Independent Media. But I have been uh, a development practitioner. I've worked uh, for the Asian Development Bank in the past, for the United Nations, the government of Pakistan, and I've advised uh, a number of other international uh, development agencies as well as the NGOs and foundations. So uh, it's a varied career, and but here I am in Ithaca. And with you? I would love to talk with you more about your experience with the Asian Development Bank and United Nations. But for now, uh, let's talk about the Afghanistan crisis. Uh, What do you make out of this crisis? For our listeners, can you briefly put this crisis into a historic perspective? As you know, much has been said on Afghanistan, and it is indeed a very complex, uh, layered history of a country which has been ravaged by continued conflict and war, especially in the past uh, four decades, but even before. So, you know, Afghanistan has been a place where uh, major powers since the 19th century have been trying to uh, get, uh, you know, get the influence or dominate the region. You know, in the 19th century, it was uh, once again the Russians versus the British Empire. And uh, they had this competition going on. and uh, But, you know, Afghanistan has also been called, it's a cliche almost to say that it's a graveyard of empires. So both uh, the British Empire and the Russian, uh, Russia of that time, you know, could not really get a foothold there. And in the 20th century, then we saw at the peak of Cold War, uh, the Soviet uh, Union in- invaded Afghanistan in 1979. And... Uh, which then led to a decade-long civil war and resistance, quote-unquote, by Mujahideen, uh, the United States sort of sponsored and backed uh, with the active participation of Pakistan, Saudi Arabia, and other countries. So it became a, a, you know, a victim of the Cold War politics, but that left the country ravaged and, uh, you know, it's 
formal state institutions were were decimated during that whole uh, process and then in the 90s we had a period of civil war intense conflict and the rise of taliban who took over the country and ruled from late ni- 1990s to early to 2001 until 9/11 uh, when we saw yet another invasion of afghanistan by the americans because of the bin laden's uh, presence and his network and uh, the refusal of the taliban to hand over al qaeda leaders and operatives to to the us and that has been a very long 20 year old uh, long uh, conflict which um, uh, despite all the claims has uh, further caused misery to the afghan people and i'm not so sure Uh, whether the war objectives were achieved or even the objectives of so called state building were achieved so uh, just uh, for the estimates uh, us and allies spent almost billions of dollars in afghanistan in the last 20 years according to the us department of defense about 955 billion dollars were spent in military and non military expenses between 2001 and 2020 Further, during the negotiation with the Taliban, uh, the United States did not include the Afghanistan government and neighboring country into the negotiation. The Biden administration was heavily criticized within and outside the U.S. for their approach and their actions. Do you think the U.S. could have done something different to avoid this crisis? Well, I think uh, invading countries in the twenty-first century is not a great idea at all. So, in the first place, the U.S. should have uh, used other means. to achieve whatever security objectives it had and uh, you know uh, this post 911 uh, war spree by the united uh, states uh, has uh, left many countries um, in in complete shambles in fact you know you must have heard of the cost of war project at the brown university which estimates that uh, you know more than 8 trillion dollars have been the total a uh, cost of us interventions military interventions overseas you know in, in afghanistan iraq syria libya and elsewhere but the human suffering has been immense and you know in afghanistan also it has uh, been the case and then uh, after this long protracted uh, very expensive war the way united states then had to uh, rush towards a deal with the same people that it uh, aimed to expel and quote unquote to use the use of bushism neutralize ultimately you know under trump administration they entered into a deal and then joe biden stood by it and you know kind of fulfilled that commitment and of course joe biden has been criticized hev- heavily in uh, by by his opposition and uh, even uh, and much of media for the hasty and uh, withdrawal and all the as the horrible scenes of people uh, trying to get on to us flights uh, and dying uh, as a result uh, of their uh, of their desperate attempt to flee the country i mean those images and those uh, will will remain etched in public memory for a long long time to come what could the us have done differently i don't think that there was much choice left honestly you know biden's uh, exit in august uh, the us uh, you know uh, fulfilling that particular deal with the taliban there were there were not many options available so in a way i think some of that criticism of, um, of joe biden uh, is also unwarranted because uh, 
uh, ultimately the US had to get out of it. I mean, it's an unpopular war. It was the longest war of overseas. And there was no appetite in America, you know, either in the public opinion or even in the within the policymakers, except for the more hawkish elements within the foreign policy architecture. So I think there was not much left. But what the US could have done differently, and I hope the US has learned this uh, lesson from uh, the post-9-11 experiment, that military invasions and uh, occupations of uh, countries whom you considered as enemies is hardly the way to achieve any kind of objective. Right. And you talked about US signing a deal with uh, Taliban. So Taliban has been the flag bearer of curbing women's rights. Uh, and Pakistan is openly advocating and supporting the present Taliban government. So do you think recognizing the Taliban as a legitimate authority is an option? Also, what future do you see for Afghan people under this regime? So first of all, uh, you know, uh, Shivanchu, I mean, Pakistan, uh, I mean, it's the curse of geography on Pakistan that, you know, it has always been a, a part of uh, the security projects uh, of the West, especially in the Cold War. Pakistan was an ally of the US and the West, you know, and has, you know, and, and the first Afghan war of the 1980s. So that, so Pakistan has its own uh, agenda there, let's put it this way, security agenda, etc. And large, and much of it has to do with its uh, rivalry with India, you know, because uh, uh, the Indians want to gain space in Afghanistan. The Pakistani authorities don't want India to have anything to do with Afghanistan. So it's, uh, it's that kind of proxy war that has been going on. I mean, th- that's a secondary side story Little known here in the U.S., for example, but that has been at the center of this conflict. Partly, I mean, because Pakistan, uh, I mean, it's it's an open secret. Pakistan has been aiding and supporting the Taliban uh, for long. Uh, But I guess for Pakistan at the moment, the current uh, top priority is to have stability in Afghanistan. Stability both in terms of uh, conflict, uh, post-conflict, sort of, you know, move towards a more stable future, but also in terms of humanitarian relief and aid that Pakistan has been urging the Western nations to pay up for uh, because of the looming humanitarian crisis. So the Taliban are not just against women's rights, they're against religious minorities, uh, they adhere to a very uh, peculiar version or interpretation of Islamic faith, which is not shared by all the one one billion plus Muslims in the world. So in a way, that's also a problem within the Muslim world and and within the Muslims uh, across the world. But having said that, the the Taliban have been a little more cautious this time. I mean, they haven't, uh, you know, indulged in the most brazen kind of uh, uh, cruelties that that we witnessed in the 1990s. So there is some uh, little welcome departure from the past, but, you know, that has its own consequences because... There are now even more extreme groups in Afghanistan, such as the ISIS, uh, Khorasan, ISIS-K, which is called, which is even more radical than the Taliban. And they, and they think that Taliban are some kind of moderates or, or compromising on their ideology. So, I mean, that's another irony of history that right. now the Taliban seem less, less extreme and there are other extremist groups. So... Uh, and then uh, because of the ungoverned uh, spaces and lawlessness and, uh, 
you know, the lack of rigged, even under the U.S. administration or U.S. control, so many other uh, groups, you know, the Chechenian separatists from Russia, uh, the Chinese extremist groups, etc. They all also found uh, sanctuaries in, in parts of Afghanistan, not to mention the Pakistani Taliban, another branch of the Taliban that have also been operating from the Afghan soil. So it is, it is not an easy situation and it's not going to go away or we can't really wish away. I mean, you know, it requires, again, a very deliberate and considered support by the international community. But unfortunately, as you know, when NATO troops and the U.S. troops have left, the interest in the region has dwindled, has, has gone down, which is, again, a very sad reality of right. international politics and international relations. So I guess uh, the, the, in, the, in the near term, the future of, of Afghan people seems very dire and very, very worrying. Uh, because as I mentioned earlier, there's a, I mean, the, the humanitarian crisis already is there. Millions of people in, in Afghanistan are facing severe uh, food insecurity and uh, economic uh, stress. Uh, you know, they have lost incomes, there are cash shortages, inflation, and, uh, you know, they, in fact, the UN uh, officials have been warning of an economic collapse right. and uh, outright famine. You know, World Food Programme survey showed that uh, 9 in 10 Afghan families have insufficient food for daily consumption. Right. And uh, half of uh, those interviewed said that they had run out of food at least once in the last, uh, uh, you know, two weeks. I mean, this was a survey done a little uh, while ago, but I mean, it's very re recent. And um, which leads us to the bigger dilemma that one in three Afghans is currently uh, facing acute hunger. And, you know, more than um, one million children could face acute malnutrition in the coming year. These are very, very serious numbers, yeah. uh, both in terms of uh, how the country is being governed. And unfortunately, the Taliban, uh, you know, they are, they may be good warriors and fighters, but they're not uh, good at governance. And that's what uh, is another challenge and how to reason with them, how to get them on board. I mean, that's why perhaps the international community has been trying to no, I mean, they haven't recognized the Taliban administration, the interim administration, as they call them, because yeah. they want certain guarantees about the future. And uh, I'm not so sure how this will this will pan out, because the dilemma, as I mentioned earlier, for the Taliban is that if they, if they go along with the international com community, then the more extreme and radical groups within uh, the country will attack them. And they've already started attacking them. You know, there have been bomb blasts, there have been attacks, etc., and if they don't go along with the international community, then the current dire economic situation is going to worsen because, you know, the IMF, the World Bank, the Asian De Development Bank, even the funds of the Afghan State Bank, which are actually with the U.S. Treasury here, are all frozen. So uh, there has to be an urgent, urgent uh, redressal of this situation. So you talked about Taliban government not being... Uh government like they have been a fighters but it's a different game to govern a country uh, so what role do you see china india and pakistan playing once us is out of afghanistan do you think they have some role to play to support the community or do they have their interest in there to exploit the community 
Yeah, I mean, uh, definitely. I think uh, I think the uh, all these countries, the regional actors, they've always um they've always been a problem in in Afghanistan, and but they're also part of the solution. Right. So uh, you know, uh, especially as I mentioned, India-Pakistan rivalry is one one uh, bit of one segment of that reality. Iran used to be uh, totally against the Taliban, but then it found. Uh, a common cause with them because both were opposing the United States. So uh, Iran and Pakistan are key players there. And with the Russians and the Chinese uh, and the Central Asian republics, you know, uh, jumping in, you have a very complicated scenario, but a scenario where all these countries have their interests. I mean, the foremost interest of Russia and China is to quell uh, what they, what is uh, you know in popular parlance known as Islamic extremism or or Islamic um, or you know faith based militancy, yeah. because both uh, the both Chinese and the Russian authorities face uh, insurgencies by these radical groups in their own countries, and so their their aim and their hope is to stabilize Afghanistan, but China has even more interest in the in the natural wealth. Uh, both tapped and untapped uh, right. within Afghanistan. China, the, the Chinese have already entered into long-term contracts, you know, uh, mining contracts because it, you know, the Chinese economy is growing and they need minerals. And then the third, uh, you know, more longer-term goal, uh, especially for the Chinese, is to have uh, a stable Afghanistan so that natural resources from Central Asia could actually travel via Afghanistan through pipelines, and Russia also wants that uh, right. because it's a it's a big exporter of natural gas and uh, and oil. So so there all these all these geo economic interests converging, and so everybody's trying to find a solution. And of course, the the U.S. We mustn't forget that just because the U.S. armies have um, or military personnel have moved out. The U.S. would want to stay engaged, and that uh, is mainly because the U.S. does not want to create or leave a vacuum, uh, which its uh, rising, uh, uh, you know, rival, i.e., China, can exploit. You know, so uh, right. because if the, if the U.S. totally disappears from this region, then the Chinese are going to come in and fill the vacuum. Yeah, and uh, I mean that's vacuum in a very conventional. Uh, power matrix uh, sense. Uh, so, so I guess um, uh, all these countries have a role to play, and uh, they must play. Be and and they must think of. But you know, whatever their own interests are, I think foremost in the coming one to two years, of, or what we call the near term, short term, in uh, policy parlance, uh, is to. Uh, is to not let Afghan people suffer. They've already been through the worst over the past few decades, you know, and you can't just now let them starve and die. Uh, and the winter is already here now. No, and uh, in, in certain parts, it's, it's an extreme winter in, in Afghanistan. So I hope, uh, I hope that international community plays its role. Yeah. So you talked about international community playing its role. Uh, so just to and you briefly touched the uh, dire situation in Afghanistan. So just to provide the perspective, the aid dependency of Afghanistan is striking. In 2019, World Bank figures show development aid was equivalent to almost 22% of gross national income. According to a rapid appraisal released by the UNDP, 
Afghanistan teeters on the brink of universal poverty. As much as 97% of the population is at risk of sinking below the poverty line, unless a response to the country's political and economic crisis is urgently launched. So, with that background, you did touch up briefly on it. But what do you think should be the next action steps for the global community to support the Afghan community in shorter and in longer term? Yeah, uh, thank you, uh, Shivanshu. Well, first of all, let me add about the poverty situation, which you already uh, cited the uh, uh, data. But I mean, you know, I mean, imagine ninety percent or more. Uh, uh, of a country's population runs the risk of falling below the poverty line. I mean, that must, that by itself should be a red alert internationally. And I, and there have been moods and summits in the in the past few weeks. You know, India did did something. The UN has been advocating for that. Russia has been, uh, uh, you know, having these stakeholder discussions. Uh, but we yet have to see a very concrete plan come coming out. You know, the, the roots of this crisis are also uh, linked to the way big powers have uh, handled and intervened uh, in Afghanistan. You know, this whole mantra of state building, you know, the, right. the, this was also used in Iraq uh, more, more overtly and expressly. You know, foreign countries, foreign powers cannot really do state building. I mean, state building is an organic process. It has to be led by the people within a country, and it goes through its certain historical cycles, certain economic and political cho choices and transformations. And obviously, that particular project, uh, you know, now stands exposed mm -hmm. because, um, you know, let's face it: the the salaries of Afghan civil service and the Afghan National Army, which uh, the U.S. spent billions of dollars in raising and training have all come to a knot. And uh, basically, you know, this is not how states are, 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 are done. And the other objective of the U.S., you know, when the, when the, Afghan, when the war was started, the U.S. invaded Afghanistan and the, and the conflict ensued, you know, there was this whole way of justifying the Afghan intervention as a means to liberate the Afghan woman. You know, it was kind of a white savior project. And now, after 20 years, I mean, guess what? The, 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 the Taliban are back with, of course, uh, full knowledge and understanding of the Americans and the Western powers, etc. And they have shut down the secondary schools for girls. I mean, they, have, uh, they are putting all these restrictions in, in universities, in hospitals, in workplaces for women. So obviously, the, the, the 20 years of investment into saving and liberating the Afghan woman has also crashed, right? I'm citing these things again is that, you know, there's a, because they, they all now contribute to the crisis at hand. As you mentioned, the development budget ex exclusively has been coming from international donors in the, in the uh, last few years because, they, I mean, because the state effectiveness is extremely, I mean, is, is almost missing there. I mean, you know, the, they don't raise taxes in most part of the country. I mean, uh, what is known commonly in the in the press that you read is that it's a country with diverse regions and warlords that control local provinces, etc. And uh, you know this whole notion of a central state, a functional, effective, uh, you know, uh, central state with some capacity, right. is also not there. But after the Taliban takeover, the the U.S., uh, you know, the New York Federal Reserve cut off 
Afghan central bank's access to its U.S. dollar assets and the capacity to settle U.S. dollar transactions with other banks. And uh, so the World Bank also stopped the bank from accessing its, its assets held by the IMF. And so, you know, U.S. dollar transactions, including paper transactions, are central to Afghanistan's economy. Right. And, uh, you know, uh, donor money, remittances, export income, and uh, the Afghan central bank hasn't got a method of uh, uh, settling these dollar accounts and obtaining new uh, paper currency dollars. Uh, the cash shortages um, are already there. And, uh, you know, places like Western Union, MoneyGram, we believe uh, uh, media has been reporting, don't have enough of uh, paper currency to give out. Right. So, so in that sense, I think in the short term, this needs to be reversed. You know, this, this policy of punishing, it, this is also known as collective punishment, where you are pitted against the Taliban and you want to teach them a lesson or, or get, extract some concessions or some agreements or assurances, but you can't really, you can't really punish a, a, the entire country. Right. And the entire population. And then you have all these immigration controls. Even now, Pakistan and, uh, you know, and, and to a great extent of Iran, which are next door neighbors. I mean, forget the Europeans and the Americans. I mean, there you already have an anti-immigration wave, uh, which is both racist and, and cruel. But even these countries are, have, uh, are saying, we're not going to take any refugees. You know, don't come here. So now people who want to flee for whatever jobs, food, or, or, or just survival yeah. are, are in a way trapped in that country. So, so I guess the first step is to reverse all these things, have enough, uh, let the Afghan uh, economy and government uh, function, and then pour in uh, humanitarian aid. I mean, you know, that's a short-term thing. And then the third, third part is that, you know, enable impossibility of uh, having more immigrants uh, from Afghanistan, both in Europe, in America, in the neighboring countries. You know, Pakistan already has millions of Afghan refugees since the 1980s. So in a way, Pakistan and Iran are two countries which have taken the most refugees from Afghanistan. But this burden has to be shared by the world. This last 20-year mess was sanctioned uh, within the UN and was supported by major Western powers. And they can't really now look the other way after that grand project has failed because they need to now really rethink what they have been doing and, and take some of that responsibility, you know, so, so, you know, uh, attacking and invading a country and all of that and without responsibility, without accountability, without impunity, this culture has to end. And all the other things that, you know, that have been reported about war crimes, you know, in Iraq and Afghanistan, I mean, and there's a separate debate, but that's also part of the debate that, you know, the civil society and, and other, uh, you know, especially the legislature within the U.S. needs to hold those accountable for this complete disastrous war. You know, you can't let it go because if you let it go, it's going to reemerge and again, uh, haunt uh, not just uh, the country in question, but the Americans in the longer term. So in the short term, these are the kind of uh, measures that need to be taken. Now, of course, in the longer term, what we do need to uh, do, I mean, the Chinese way of investing more in the country, building infrastructure, mineral development, uh, you know, natural resource um, management, all of that should be supported. 
the Russian and the Chinese have, uh, I think the U.S. Uh, has already some convergence of interest on that front. So the U.S. and China, instead of being these rivals and in, 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 instead of, you know, because there's a whole community, policy community in Washington, D.C. And I guess by that token, even in China and even in Moscow, who would very much like a replay of the Cold War politics, because you see that suits the most powerful people on this earth, i.e. the arms uh, industry and the military industrial complex, uh, you know, in, in different parts of the world. They would love that to happen, have a prolonged, endless conflict like the Cold War so that more and more arms are manufactured, more and more lethal bombs are sold and, and tanks and drones and all of that, because that's how these powerful elites work. So in the longer term, uh, we have to reverse that culture. From I mean, what is more important? The U.S. just passed a one trillion dollar, uh, you know, infrastructure bill after much, uh, uh, you know, negotiation and you know compromises and heated debates, and it's just one trillion dollars, right? So right. imagine the eight trillion dollars spent on these senseless, fruitless wars. Just make the comparison. I mean, it's a you know. But uh, again, the American public and, um, and American politicians and American grassroots movements uh, and the civil society and media, of course, they have to play, the, play a role uh, in the longer term. So from a policy perspective, I mean, you know, that is what, uh, what perhaps needs to uh, be taken into account. Uh, but in the longer term also, how can the international community uh, play a positive and engaged role is let them be. Don't repeat the mistakes of the past. Don't go and throttle a country. Don't go and don't go with this your savior recipes and formulas and complexes. You know, if the Taliban are, are unpopular, sooner than later, they would be out of power. It may take five years, seven years, six years, whatever. But it's a process that the country has to go through. I mean, that time of uh, intervening on behalf of this group or that group is over and should be over. I, I hope so. In longer term, uh, the country should be allowed to breathe. But whatever damage the Soviet, the, the Russians, the Americans, the Pakistanis, uh, to some degree Iranians, have wreaked on this poor, hapless country, and the Saudis, I forgot, and Indians to some extent, now it's time to fix that and learn from their mistakes and help this country instead of again turning into a battleground of strategic interests of um, you know these national uh, security driven agendas and uh, you know military calculations because this is we are no longer talking we are, we are talking about millions of people who are at risk of mass starvation hunger and deprivation right right uh, Raza, i think uh... This is the right point for us to stop. Uh, and I am hopeful that global community understand that what is right for the people of Afghanistan and support them at this crossroad. And I hope for the bright future of the Af Afghan community. Yeah, so I know. So, you know, I because uh, before that we were talking about, uh, you know, what's the hope. Yeah. So I guess, uh, yeah, so I, I, I think we should not uh, end at such a dismal note. Uh, the, the greatest asset... Afghanistan has now that there's a new generation now uh, since, um, uh, you know, 2001 of young Afghan men and women 
you know, who are both articulate and who are both aware and they know their country well and they want to serve their country. So in a way, that particular asset is something that uh, I hope uh, will play its due role. I'm quite sure because it's a different population uh, that we are dealing with, right? So, but for that to happen, stability needs to return first. With that hope, let's end this podcast here. Thank you so much, Raza, for taking the time out. Thank you. Thank you, Shivanshu. Thank you.